Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's just not finished. On today's episode of Third Act, I talk with Anne Devereaux Mills, the power connector. Anne discovered that she was a leader as a Wellesley undergraduate and parlayed that into a terrific career in advertising, rising to become CEO of several companies. But the triple threat of cancer, an empty nest, and job loss caused her to re-examine her career and life choices. So she figured out where her passion met her prowess, founding Parley House, a national salon-style gathering for women. Today, she is a noted speaker, author, philanthropist, and my favorite chief instigator at Parley House. And welcome to Third Act. Great to have you here. Hey, Liz. Thanks for having me. So you're the first person I've interviewed who's got her own Wikipedia page. So it was a bit <laughs> intimidating. Your life's incredible. Can't wait to hear more. But just to get started, you're originally from Seattle. Is that correct? I am. But Seattle was a very different Seattle when I grew up there. Yeah. It, it's changed an awful lot. Yeah. I'm from there as well. Do you miss the rain at all? I don't miss the rain. Yeah. I, you know, I, when you're growing up in it, I'm sure you felt this way. You don't notice that it's raining no. all the time because that's just life. And yeah, then when it, you live somewhere where it doesn't rain all the time and you go back, it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot of rain. It's three o'clock here, 3 p.m. And we're in the infamous winter sun break, which when I first moved out here, they're like, oh yeah, we're going to have a sun break. It will last for a half hour every once a day in January. <laughs> that's about right. But, you know, moving on, you went to Wellesley as your first I act. Did. And so why did you pick Wellesley and, and what did you expect to do when you came out of Wellesley? You know, as someone who now knows Wellesley was absolutely transformative for me, I didn't choose to go there as my first choice. So just to be very frank, you know, I went to Lakeside School in mm -hmm. Seattle, which, you know, is where Robert Fulgham, who wrote Everything I Need to Know I Learned to kin in Kindergarten, was my uh, English teacher. And Bill Gates was a few years ahead of me changing the world. And it was, you know, a very creative co-ed place where my definition in high school was kind of being the, the pretty girl. And I did not think of myself as a woman's woman until I didn't get into Yale. And when I was looking at my options, uh, and my mother had gone to Wellesley as well, so it was sort of a legacy situation, I just decided, you know, I'm ready. Seattle was a small town then. It's not like it is now. And I thought, I'm going to try something totally new. And I jumped out of co-ed education into an all-women environment, and it ended up being perfect for me. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Because without being distracted by, you know, I did have a great social life, but without, you know, sort of playing a role that I think many women fall into in, in young co-ed environments where there's a whole lot of focus on getting the attention of or being intimidated by men, I was able to come into my own in a way, I don't think I realized it was happening at the time, but would I have become involved in college government? Maybe not. Would I have become senior class president? Maybe not. But I sort of was able to figure out who I was with the support of women around me in a transformational way. Yeah, that's great. And you said you kind of found your leadership chops when you were at Wellesley. I did. I did. When I got to Wellesley, there was not just one circle and I found mine and I found my people and they're still friends to this day. After you graduate though, you go into insurance 
which you said was not a fit, (laughs) (laughs) but it taught you what you don't want to do, which by the way, is I'm pushing my youngest one to get an internship for that exact reason. I'm like, it will at least teach you what you don't want to do. Well, I think that's career life, right? You you try something, you think it's going to be one thing, it ends up being something else. And so you throw out the pieces that you don't like and don't work for you. And you do more of the things that you do like and do work for you until until you find the perfect fit. And that was, you know, I, I studied political science and economics because I thought I was supposed to not because it was what I was best at. And when I was looking for a job in 1984, when the economy was pretty terrible, I took the one job that I could get and it was in totally the wrong industry for the creative, dynamic, feminist, outspoken person that I am. So how did you end up in advertising, which ended up being a great fit for you? It was, it was coincidence. You know, I first, um, when I was trying to get out of get out of insurance. And I was only in that industry for a couple of years. I had developed some friends in New York City, uh, which is where where I was working. And just by networking through friends, I got a job in corporate communications, which was closer to the right fit because it was communications oriented, but it was more of a sales role. And I'm not a natural salesperson in the traditional sense, but I liked the communications piece and the creativity. And so it was sort of a series of three or four pivots until I honed in on the world of advertising. And it just stuck. I mean, I think my brain is one of those that's sort of a pretty good balance between left and right. I'm good at getting things done, but I love to be a creative person. And so advertising, especially on the account services side before I became an executive, was the best of both because I was sort of the conduit between the needs of the client and the ability of the creative team to turn that into communications magic. And you, I mean, you had a great rise up through multiple companies, all sort of in the healthcare side of advertising, becoming president and CEO of multiple companies. I mean, did you have any kind of end goal in mind? Did you, any thoughts on where this career might take you? No. And I don't think that's how my brain works. I'm not a super linear person that's said someday I want to be in the C-suite. I'm more the kind of person that always wants to try the thing of the person who's a step ahead of me. And so I live much more in the, am I challenged, interested, engaged, optimized now? If yes, I'm happy. And if no, I'm looking to take that next step. And so I live very much in a in a shorter window. And, and that speaks, Liz, to an important kind of life philosophy that I have, which is, you know, we, we when you get on a path where you think the only progress is straight ahead and up, it tends to limit your choices a lot. And so whether it was pivoting from geographies as I was a young person to career paths from insurance to corporate communications to healthcare advertising. And then I did, you know, some, some beyond healthcare advertising as well. You know, if you just think I want the next higher job in doing whatever I'm doing, you might miss opportunities to do things that you had no idea you would love and were good at. To be honest with you, you're unlike a lot of the other people I've interviewed who have followed a much more linear path. So they've, they got good grades in school, then they got into college and grades, you know, grades, 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 A's, A's, A's. Then they got the best job they could. And then they just followed that path up. 
so it's interesting because, you know, everybody's about the same age that I interview. Is there anything that, was it Wellesley or is it just the way you've always been that you're looking at sort of different, sort of different paths to take? I think the reality is I get bored really easily. So I like, if you said, I want to take you to your favorite place for dinner, I would want to go someplace I'd never been. If you said, what's your favorite vacation spot? I can tell you what I love, but is that where I want to go next? No, I'd rather go somewhere. So that's just, that's who I am is I get most stimulated when I'm figuring things out and trying new trying new things. Mm-hmm. Well, then we're going to hear more about that as we go on. So tell us about this triple thread of uh, progressing cancer, empty nest, and then unexpected job loss. What happened? Oh my God. It was, this was an insane life inflection point. When you think about what the world was like in, in 2008, 2009, compound the mortgage crisis and the economic hardships being faced by everybody, with me having recently gotten out of a really unhealthy marriage, being the mother of two daughters, having had cervical cancer during that divorce. So I was alternating between Memorial Sloan Kettering and the court to try to get through that. I got through it. I I felt like, okay, that was tough. And now it's 2008, nine, I'm running a turnaround. Turnarounds, as you know, are challenges in and of themselves. Just a few hours a week. (laughs) Exactly. My oldest daughter was off in college. My second daughter uh, was about ready to go to college when I got a very unexpected call from my oncologist who had been following up with me. And he said, "Eh, you know, that last biopsy, I know you have them all the time. This one is not so good. The cells are accelerating. Um, We can stop this, but we need to remove another significant part of your body and we need to do it now. So, yeah. So, you know, what do you do? You say, okay, you know, I've had, I've had cancer before. I've been through this before. I've had hardships before. I'm just going to, you know, take a couple weeks off work, have the surgery, go back and continue to run the company. This is what we do. And so when I walked into my boss of 20 plus years, I had built a number of companies for him. And I said, got to take a couple of weeks off, but you know me, I'm tough. I'll be back. No problem. He said, yeah, I'm going to have someone else run the company. And I know in that moment, I, you know, not only did I lose my job, I had already had my health at risk. My last kid was about to go to college, but I lost my sense of identity because when you're in that work world and your primary self-definition is what you do for a living or whose mother you are secondarily, you know, I didn't have those things anymore. So that was a really pivotal moment. And I'm assuming that I'm also a cancer survivor. The last identity you want to take on at that point is cancer patient. Oh, yeah. I was whenever I went in in for whatever I was going in for, I would always look around and say, yeah, luckily I'm not like them. You know, I it was total denial and avoidance and just, you know, put it put it in a little box and close the box and go on with your life. So uh, that series of events leads you to make sort of some pretty major career and life changes and you end up making a cross country move as well. So what was your, what happened there? And what was your thinking? Panic, you know, I I mean, absolute loss of footing, loss of self. Uh, I had the the only thing that sort of didn't get uh, destroyed in that 
a series of months was a new relationship. I had been dating for a couple of years, a guy who was based in, in Northern California and he came to New York all the time. And we had a great long distance relationship and he, he was with me during my surgery. And as I was getting better, he said, you know, sort of like, what are you going to do now? And I said, I'm just going to go get another job running another company. And he said, you know, no offense, but this is kind of killing you. You know, it's, it doesn't seem to be making you particularly happy. They're not treating you well. Why? You, why this is, you know, why would you do that linear thing? And I sort of thought about it and said, yeah, you're right. And, you know, to be very frank, I had been successful on probably any measure, uh, except not at the financial level that he was. And so moving across country, he gave me the freedom to not have to move for a job. You know, what I, what I was going to do next could be what I wanted to do next, not what I had to do next. And I recognize that that is a very privileged position to be in. Although, to be honest, it, I was feeling so sorry for myself because I was so lost. I'm not sure I appreciated it as much as I do now. Well, I think too, I mean, if you, you had been a high earner and I think it's very hard to let go of that. It still is to this day. I mean, I've been with him now for 10 years and I still sometimes feel less than despite being successful doing other things because of that. Yeah. So you get to San Francisco, beautiful place with mm. the new boyfriend and you're financially okay, but you don't have any friends. So right. instead right. of, like, you know, like I don't know one person you know, in the city. One person. <laughs> so you decide to create your own group that ends up being Parley House. So how did that happen? I, I, had this downtime to, you know, A, put our, our nest together. We, we bought a home and, and furnished it and it was beautiful. And I was standing on the roof and we had this gorgeous view across the bay looking over at Marin. And I was thinking, oh my God, look, at it's such a warm afternoon and the sun is setting and I want to have someone to have a glass of wine with. And I knew nobody. So when I was trying to figure out what I would do to find friends, I kind of drew from past experiences that had been meaningful to me. One of the experiences was Wellesley, which we've talked about. Another one of the experiences was having been a fellow of the Aspen Institute. And the Aspen Institute Henry Crown Fellowship, I was in a class, sort of a uh, prestigious leadership, values-based leadership training program where 20 of us were together on and off for two years studying what makes a really good leader and what our values are and what we wanted our legacy to be. And in that class, there were people that were so different than me. You know, if they, they might have been politically different, they were from a different country, there were men and women, there were public sector and private sector. And the depth of connection we had because we were not all in the same bubble and all the same was profound. And those were the people when the going got tough for me who were super, super supportive and are still people I would turn to to this day. And I sort of thought, okay, if that plus Wellesley felt among the most supportive times and the place where I could be my vulnerable and authentic self, how do I get more of that for me? And how do I create more of that for other people? And I've always been keenly aware of the privilege that I have and very disappointed that I don't get enough exposure into situations that are less familiar. And this goes back to, at my essence, I want to be learning, growing, trying new things. 
So I just did this random thing. And I asked some of those people from the Aspen Institute and some of my friends from Wellesley and, you know, friends of my sisters. And I said, who do you know in the Bay Area that might want to come over to my house? And these were complete strangers. And let's just have someone talk as, as you know, giving us sort of shared content and, and let's get to know each other. And I literally found myself with 12 strangers in my living room. That would never happen in Seattle. You'd get the Seattle freeze for sure. So, but good to know it happened in San Francisco. Yes. Yes, maybe. I I do have some friends in Seattle who are doing kind of similar things. And I think you're right. It started with a group who already knew each other. But, you know, we ended up with a friend of mine who is a poet talking very, very loosely about how there's no way to interpret poetry that that you can be wrong. You know, whatever it means and feels to you is, is what it should be. And it was, it, it had nothing to do with anything except that it was a conversation everybody could have. And I think we talked for maybe 20 minutes about that. And the common grounding of a topic then allowed us in groups of people who were just meeting each other to actually talk at deeper levels. And it was pretty cool. There was a buzz in the room. You know, we served champagne, so there was a buzz, but there was also just, you know, <laughs> a, a friendship buzz that happened. And we, we said, you want to do this again? And everyone said, yes. And the next time everybody brought a friend and we had 30 and we had 50 and we're now nearing 10,000 around That's the world amazing. in 12 cities. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Hey, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, cause same thing happened to me. You said that, you know, you had, you had great jobs. You must've had a lot of friends in New York, male and female. And you, like I used to say about the people I work with, they were like my mostly brothers and a few sisters and I feared when I left my job that I would, they wouldn't, I'd never hear from them again, even though I talked to them every day, every other day. And it's true, especially the guys. I mean, did you find the same thing? <laughs> you know, it was one of the most crushing elements to um, not only being uh, sick again, but losing my job. I realized that of the, of the thousands of people I'd worked with and the hundreds of people I was working with then and was what I thought, you know, close to, friendly with, almost none of them were there for me when I lost power. Isn't that incredible? And it was incredible. And so I did not want a future of transactional relationships. So I really set about this whole Parlay House movement was based on one rule and one rule only, which is you cannot come to one of our events with an ask. You can't be starting a nonprofit and want to ask the marketing person for advice. Got you it. Can't, you know, and that way yeah. it creates a safe space that you can show up and be engaged without having to have your sort of, you know, shield of protection on for fear that something's going to be transactional in nature. So you've got 10,000 people. What, what do you consider, and you've written a book on it called The Parlay Effect. What, what, do you, what is that? So that was pretty fascinating. I had started to do more public speaking and a lot of the places that I was speaking asked whether I had a book and I hadn't really thought about writing a book until I realized that I was living a book. And so I, I wrote a book about this transformative moment in my life when I realigned values and uh, sort of give some good advice for people who don't want to be constantly on a linear path or are looking to uh, create a new chapter about how to do that. 
So I contacted a woman who is now the head of the psychology department at Cal Berkeley. And I said to her, you know, I'd love to do some actual research into what I see happening within the Parlay House community. And what I would see happening is I would I would run into someone or meet someone and through her, I would hear a story of the thing after the thing after the thing that happened as a result of being at my house at one of our gatherings or at another one of the locations. And it was, you know, it was not just a, a and I met her and she met her and, they, you know, it's, it, it wasn't just like this linear thing. It was very fulfilling at, at sort of a soul level and was inspiring people to be more inclusive and generous in their behavior. And so I said to her, I want to track and see really what's happening here. And, and so we designed this research study where we had 437 online anonymous participants bucketed into one of three groups and answering questions for us. The first group we called the givers. And we said, can you think of and tell us about a time when you did something for somebody? It didn't have to be a big deal, anything, but it had a disproportionate effect on them. You know, what, what was that? And they told us their stories. And the second group of people we called the receivers. And we said, you know, was there ever anybody in your life whose behavior towards you, whether it was inclusion or whether it was a gift or whether it was empowerment or whatever, had it changed the way that you live your life? And we called them the receivers. And then we thought, oh, shoot, what if nobody can think of anything? You know, what if, what if they, we have people who can't think of themselves as being generous nor lucky to have received anything. So we had this third bucket and we called them the witnesses. We said, just tell us about something you've observed. You know, it didn't happen to you. You didn't do it, but, but they were the witnesses. So as you might guess, the, the givers were the people that are frequently generous and they could tell us stories of how small acts of bringing someone else into a meeting or supporting her point of view or donating something to someone who needed it or coaching someone had had meaningful impact and that those people began to to replicate the behavior and the receivers validated that yes somebody had done something for them and they realized how big of a deal it was to transfer a skill or pass on something that was unused these were not wealthy people right these people were talking about passing on diapers that their baby got bigger and they had this whole box and the woman down the street really needed anything she could get and you know, it was and then she went on to donate something to someone else so these were small stories the the kicker and what I think make, makes the book so interesting is the witnesses. So the witnesses would say, sometimes they'd tell us stories that you'd be like, oh yeah, that's pay it forward. They saw someone at, at McDonald's pay for the meal of the person behind them. And those are nice stories and we all know about pay it forward. But what was more interesting was you'd say someone, you'd talk to someone and, and I remember this one so clearly. They said, I was sitting outside of 7-Eleven. There were a bunch of homeless people around. And when a guy came out of 7-Eleven, he had bought an extra sandwich and he gave it to this guy. And then he watched as the guy walked across the street to the park. And I could see that that one sandwich was now being given to two or three other people. So one tiny action by one person was then feeding three people. But our witness, who was not part of this, just observing it said, so the next week when I go to the grocery store, I'm going to help people who can't afford their groceries to do that. You had someone who all of a sudden was replicating the behavior as something they weren't involved with at all. And that 
sort of said to us that the result of these small acts of kindness, empathy, inclusion, empowerment, support are actually changing the way that people behave in a, in a way that amplifies on an exponential level, not just on a linear level. And so that's what that that book was all about. And that's really what we've seen at Parlay House and why we've grown so quickly and so globally is that the ability to include is so easy. What have you seen the pandemic? Because you're still going virtually. So what do you, as we come out of it, hopefully by the end of this year, what do you think will be the lasting impact of, of the change? Where do you think it will go? Where are you headed with it? Well, the, the wonderful thing about being forced into a Zoom world is access. So, you know, in, in the past, we've, you know, even if even though we're in London and Paris and Amman, Jordan and across the United States, you know, the, the limitations of the size of someone's personal space mean that you get you have lovely, deep conversations on a community level, but you can't have the global reach and the global expansion at the speed and impact that you'd want. And yet during the pandemic, we have doubled in size. We, uh, during most of our conversations, which are either once or twice a week, we have people participating from around the globe. And then people say, oh my goodness, in my town in Spain, women are still told to be essentially seen and not heard. And I wanna change that dynamic. So the, the, the fact that we have people around the world participating virtually means they see the relevance and want to take the lead in their location to, to extending what we do to their, to their cities. And that's just wonderful. And I assume you're not bored with this yet. <laughs> oh my God, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, cause where are you headed? Is it just continuing to expand? You have other, other thoughts of where the, the salons may go or the, the membership? Uh, well, yes, they're going to, you know, I hope they're going in, in more and more places where women are, are still feeling exceptionally secondary and not able to have authentic, supportive conversations mm. that empower them. So certainly that points to places in the south of the United States. And I've done a lot of work in Uganda, uh, which is a very male-driven place. Strong women, but uh, they certainly have a secondary role in decision-making and not always, you know, the support that they need. So, you know, around the world, places where, where women really want to want to create supportive communities that allow them to become empowered is where we want to be. And we're, we're trying to further accelerate that by launching a podcast. So um, bring a friend. We'll promote that in our, in our show notes and everything as well. When does it launch? It launches February 3rd. So it's, it's literally the, the trailer is out and we've record, we have phenomenal interviews with women, some of whom you'll say, oh my God, I can't believe you got to talk to her. And others will say, oh my God, where did you, where did you find that story? Because it just hits, hits at my heart. So it's, it's pretty wonderful. Yeah. Kind of the third act is, is Parley House. And I mean, my God, you're probably gonna have 20 acts uh, given your pace, but You've been very involved in philanthropy, and I don't know if that's like act two and a half. When did you get involved? Tell us about that as well. That's a good question of where where I got involved. I mean, I have parents who are very active in causes that they believe in, and so I think I had really good role models. Did you do it as a kid? Were you involved in stuff as a kid then? 
sort of, but I, but I certainly watched them. There are different times in your life when you're sort of able to take on things. When I was a single mom running companies and raising kids, I didn't have an extra minute to, you know, go to the bathroom, let alone do something. Um, aside from giving money, you can always be be generous. But I think the philanthropic projects that are meaningful to me are ones where I can really get in deep and they get to know the people, get to understand it, be, you know, be 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 up to my eyeballs in that thing I care about. And funny enough, after the, after my divorce and first round of cancer, I had taken on this turnaround role and was being interviewed by a reporter who uh, had just gotten back from doing research on the donation of AIDS and malaria medicine in Uganda and had, had met a local pastor, a British educator and they were talking about the huge numbers of children that they saw in the slums outside of Kampala who had no access to anything, food, education, healthcare. And they decided to do something about it and to start a school. And I sort of said to her, well, what the hell are you doing interviewing me? <laughs> You're doing the important work. You know, me running a, a healthcare advertising agency is nothing compared to the impact you're having on these humans who I can, you know, feel and empathize with. And so to make a very long story short, I joined their effort very early and was part of the launch and growth of this still still going organization that is helping the poorest children in Uganda get a second chance at really uh, living living a, a meaningful and thriving life. And so that was transformative for me. It's, you know, when you're doing, this is for me, this is not universal for everybody, but when I am doing things for the motive of making money, growing businesses, you know, sort of, sort of extracting in, in some form, it felt incredibly good to have a place where I could be additive. And so for my company, when you're running a turnaround and so many of the conversations are about downsizings and right sizings and, you know, painful decisions to be able to have this feeling of doing good for other people uh, was meaningful on a lot of levels. And I, once I caught that bug, I have never been able to get it out of my system. And so then the question is, how do you focus on what you care about? How do you choose what you're going to do? And, you know, I sort of have three buckets that I focus on that are things that that I care about, which, you know, continue to be the education of those who could thrive with it. And, and I've done that by mentoring young women as part of an organization called She Can, which takes girls from uh, countries that have survived a genocide and and wanting to make the next generation of leaders include women who have the ability to lead and contribute in meaningful ways. And the second is joining my husband, who has been a social justice activist his whole life. He's he's uh, uh, chairman of the board of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and we've been focusing a lot on prison reform. And when we worked on the, the three strikes law in California, which he re rewrote the language for Prop 36, and I did the, the marketing and sort of advocacy work, and we, we were successful, you know, that continues to be something that we do as a couple. And then we did an Emmy-nominated film called The Return, and, th and that was great. And then, you know, my focus continues to be 
putting women in places where not only do they get the emotional connection and support and empowerment that helps equal the playing field, uh, but any place that I can lift other women, especially women of color, but but women to give us a more equal seat at the table, uh, you know, I'm focused on doing that. Yeah. I don't think you're getting much sleep from what I <laughs> like. yeah, sleep's underrated. No, actually I, I really do believe in sleeping and I'm, and, and I'm just, I'm somebody who uh, has a, a lot of energy, so it's healthy for me to channel it. I can tell uh, the whole board thing early on. So I, uh, I listened to your podcast that you did with Michael Gervais. Finding mastery. Yeah. Yeah. And you, he asked you this great question, which is what would you ask others who are masters of their craft? Right. And you said, when did you realize that you were at the intersection of who you are and what you value? So can I ask you that question? Ask you your own question. You know, I think it was, I, I, it, yeah, it's fascinating. I think when I, when I was stripped down to my barest essence and knew, you know, I'd been successful enough that I know I'm a nurturer and I know I'm a leader and it's impossible to put me into a situation without those two things where I would thrive. And so I, you know, I, that intersection was when you're stripped of everything that's title and everything that's responsibility, and you know that nurturing and leading is, it comes naturally and makes your heart sing. You know, I only put myself in situations where I feel I can contribute in that way. Parlay House is that thing. It is absolutely that thing. And, and it's really, you know, it's really hard when you care about a lot of things. Saying no is very important and very difficult. Yeah, but, but, you know, really important because I would rather do a few things that I understand well, know well, and can do something about rather than try to do too many things not well. When I retired, somebody gave me the advice, say yes to everything the first year, because, you know, just like you. 100% agree. Yeah. Right. I had three kids, job, I had cancer. I said no to everything. And then I said yes, which was really fun. And then I got way overcommitted to a lot of things that, frankly, I had to go, I was like, this isn't me. I had to go back and say no, which was so hard for me. <laughs> well, but that's, you know, I, that's a, a chapter in my book, actually. I think when you're trying to figure out what your next life chapter is, starting by dipping your toe in the water a whole bunch of times till you can realize which pools feel great to dip your toe into and which kind of give you the heebie-jeebies you've got you've got to you've got to try a bunch of things and that's you know in any stage of our life and i i would consider myself just sort of getting started with the impact that i think and i can have and that i want to have and and each time I make a transition, it's because I was willing to say yes to enough things that I could know whether it was, I wanted to go in deeper. And I think to your point about insurance, you don't know what you don't like until you try it. And right. you probably figured that I found that out as well by saying yes to a lot of new things that were completely different from my job. With your husband, I want to ask a question because people who are sort of third act or moved off their big careers with their spouse, their partner, the philanthropy, is that, was that something you were both interested in or was that something that was his and you got involved in? How did, how do you both sort of structure your lives with that? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you a really cute story about that. So our, we, we were, we were fixed up on a blind date 
And I was running between corporate headquarters and a fundraising meeting for the school in Uganda when I had half an hour to meet this stranger for coffee. And he was late. He's always late. So then I had 20 minutes. And, you know, I started to talk to him and he was a pretty fascinating guy. But I said, look, I, you know, sorry, buddy, your 20 minutes is up. I'm going, <laughs> I'm going back to the office. Uh, I got to gotta raise money. Yeah. Right. Do you know how hard it is to raise money during a recession uh, for a charity outside of the United States? And so he said, well, let me walk you back to the office. And by the end of the walk, he said, you know, I, and I knew really nothing about him at the time. And I, he said, I, you know, I'll give you some money. Uh, how much money do you need? This is a first date. How much money do you need? How do you answer that question? So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to throw out a number. It was a burgeoning organization, not very big yet. And I, I said, okay, I'm going to throw out a number that when I tell the other founders, they're going to be psyched, but it's not going to prevent me from getting another date. So I, <laughs> I, I, I threw out That's a number. A great story. Yeah, I threw out a number and he said, yeah, okay. Oh and I gosh. took the elevator up to my office and I said, damn, I totally undersold that. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> so, when, so when he called to ask for another date, I said, you know, that was so generous of you. I love that you're willing to do it. And he had a great pickup line, which was, you know, I really like putting money behind uh, people who I have a lot of confidence in and I think are smart and going to do a great job. So of course he totally boosted my ego. And I said, well, if that's the case, we really could use enough money to fund our first full-time employee. So could you do that? And he did. What a guy. You had me at hello, right? I mean, that's a wonderful story. <laughs> exactly. So the relationship began with philanthropy at its core. And as I moved out to California and he was starting to, you know, we've both been appalled at our country's use of prisons um, as a way to solve problems. And we we tend to only make things worse with that rather than better. And so, you know, he, he was, he's a law professor and he had seen a legal way to um, make the law less punitive, the third strikes law less punitive. And so he was on a, a legal minded quest to do that. And luckily, I know how to take projects and turn them into effective communications. And so we sort of merged on that. And I'll tell you with the third bucket of what we're focusing on, which is, um, you know, female empowerment, inclusion, whether it's getting more women at the helms of companies or included in on boards or the C-suite, he has really been supportive and partnering as much as he can understand as a, as a white male in, in my doing that. So we really do balance each other out very well in, in, in each of the things that we're interested in. That's really cool. And I like the fact that you're both, I mean, that you've both found sort of shared passion around different things, right? So you might've had your school, but then the uh, three strikes law, that's very, very cool. Something I've been talking to my own husband about, like, we need to come up with a, a cause that we both can support. Yes. Um, yeah. So, and I always ask my guests at the end of the podcast, what they're not done with yet. And given that what you've already done, I'm not quite sure how you're going to answer this. It could take the rest of the two hours, but what else are you, what else is on the plate for your fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, hundredth act that you've got in front of you? Well, I mean, I, an answer that's probably relatively predictable, especially for, for the people that are, are tuning into this podcast is, you know, I have been on a number of boards in the past, whether it's nonprofit boards, private equity boards, and I've chaired a, a board of a public company. Right now, I'm not 
doing any of that. And I am going to find, uh, you know, I, I don't want to just take any board seat because I already, I've already been on boards. It's not something I need to add to my bucket list, but it's a place where I could add value if it's something where I really felt it was the right fit. So uh, from my business answer to that is that I'm open to hearing about other board opportunities. But I also have found during this pandemic and this time of forced sort of isolation that I've returned to things that I had abandoned when I got into the work world. And they're they're especially um, creative things. So we had been quarantining in Hawaii for about 10 months on the little island of Kauai where there's not much going on. And I had a lot of downtime When I was a kid, the way that I earned spending money was working at a sewing store and I would earn enough spending money to buy fabric so that I could make myself new clothes to wear to school the next day. I've always been sort of a a fashion interested, creative person. I design jewelry, I um, knit, I, you know, I do all these things. And so I've spent the last year loving designing clothing so much that, you know, I'm toying with the idea of, you know, do I want to make that into a business? I don't know, but I love exploring something that, uh, that my 18 year old self let go of. And my 50 something year old self is rediscovering. We got introduced to Kim Alexis Newton, who's the, right. And she was on the podcast a couple of times. I mean, her work is beautiful and she sort of rediscovered it as well. Right. That is so neat. Very cool. Okay. So you have, we can find you online at your website, which we'll publish in the show notes and at Parley House. And- yeah, parleyhouse.com will pretty much get you anywhere you need to get, whether it's to, to our podcast or to my book or to me. Yeah. And we'll put all that in the show notes and publish it on our social media. So thank you so much for your wisdom, your tenacity. You know, I was, when I was thinking about it, I uh, resilience is a great word, but your tenacity in my mind of pushing and pushing and just, you know, making it happen for yourself is unbelievable. Really remarkable. Yeah, so thanks some, would call it, some would call it pain in the ass. Some would call oh, it come on. instigator, <laughs> instigator. So, and thanks so much. For sure. <laughs> thanks, Liz. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.